Welcome to DeFi by Design, where we talk all things blockchain and cryptocurrency while striving to educate, empower, and enrich. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to DeFi by Design podcast. The modular Thursday today. Feeling very modular and vibey today. My vibe. Been on pod since 8 a.m. and woke up this morning and talked about uh, my story in the crypto and I always tell the same story with Rob about how we started the club and then we got wrecked on BitMEX. So, feeling unwrecked today, Rob. And you got wrecked on BitMEX. I got wrecked on Bittrex. We took very, very two different journeys to get to the same place. Um, and, we <laughs> and, uh, and yes, we've arrived here on this modular Thursday. The vibes are... Uh, are feeling very modular indeed i feel like that's uh that's a particularly nice uh design choice for vibes nowadays so very very special guest today is dino from fluent uh fluent is building a consortment of things in uh in the space we're gonna be talking about some of the novel design choices that fluent has made um in their vm and their layer two and I think a good way to to kind of like kick off this conversation is to like kind of like tell the story of Fluent. Like you guys have been around for quite a while thinking and building. What are some of the some of the patterns and the trajectory that you've noticed Ethereum going and where did you start to have ideas as far as where you could fit in, where Fluent could fit in and sort of take ownership of of one or more of these patterns? Um, so first off, good to good to be here, guys. It's it, it is indeed a very modular Thursday. Um, as you know, it's it's actually getting me even more excited, which should be a very modular March coming up um, in a couple of months. Uh, but quick teaser. So um, yeah, happy to give like a overview of of kind of what we're doing myself, I guess, and what we're doing on a, a, a Fluent, if that would be helpful. So um, like you said, Dina, one of the co-founders of of Fluent Labs. Um, where uh, and, and we were building a layer two blockchain on Ethereum. Um, and I guess the best place to start, I guess, is where, um, you know, the inception of this thing, if that would be a useful uh, beginning. Um, I, well, I, I had spent a number of years in, um, in Web2, in cloud infrastructure specifically. So I've worked on stuff kind of all over the place, always in early stage startups, always in kind of like, developer tooling and infra. So I've done some stuff with like Kubernetes based ecosystems. I've done some stuff in edge computing, some like AI inference stuff and like some data science tooling. Um, and then I got interested in crypto. Well, I was interested in crypto before this, but probably started getting involved in crypto maybe like three or so years ago and started just dabbling as like investing in some stuff, like, you know how it goes. And then started being like somewhat of like a hobbyist, like researcher, writer, just started like, you know, started a blog and just started uh, interacting on like crypto Twitter and discourse. Um, and I got sucked right down like the roll up in modular rabbit holes. Like I remember kind of like mid 2021 starting to see the like Polynia pieces and like starting to see the Celestia start talking about modular. And like, I was just hooked. I mean, it came from like the microservices background, right? So it just like made sense to me. Um, and then, so went down that rabbit hole at the beginning of the past year, 2023, I was like, all right, I need to do something in this space. Like I need to build something. Um, and the first thing I did, just because I had kind of like the, 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 the you know, built up knowledge base and kind of um, network in the, in the modular ecosystems, I started Modular Media, which is, um, you know, new as research education for like the modular infraspace. And um, then maybe like four or five months later, I was actually introduced by a friend um to what is now my co-founder and cto but he was like hey he's got he's another researcher in the space at, at at scroll and he's like hey um you you know these guys are working on like a, a zk wasm uh roll up like this would be pretty cool you should you should probably talk to them and i actually went out to um uh zuzalu like the experiment in montenegro for a couple of weeks and me and D dimitri my my co-founder um we just hung out i mean talk about like the perfect place to just like workshop an idea around and kind of like learn about it you got like 200 like researchers and like devs there and then you're just kind of asking them like hey like is this is this interesting and kind of pressing into it also 
um, we obviously had the time to get to know each other. And so that was kind of the inception. I, I, I can't, um, you know, I, I would definitely say like, kind of he, he was thinking about these things for specifically Wasm for, for longer than I was, but coming from the web two background, I'm like, this just makes sense. I mean, Wasm has started to dominate as like a runtime and like very uh, desirable, um, kind of compilation target in, in web two and like all developers like know this thing, it has a brand of its own and all the tooling and libraries and packages that are compatible from web two um, can just kind of be ported into web three. And that just made a lot of sense to me. I'm happy to kind of like describe, offer a little bit more context on like the Wasm piece of it and like maybe how, you know, what is it, what does that mean? Like, how did it solve problems in web two? Like, why was it popular there? And like, why, why does it make, and how does it exactly get applied in web three? If, if that would be helpful. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think people uh, um, may or may not understand uh, the the intricacies. I think uh, people probably understand that uh, um, you know, Solidity and the programming language of EDM has has um, difficulties and had some downfalls. So we'd be keen to understand, um, you know, what Wasm is, why it's important, why you guys chose this design choice, and then even further, like what DK Wasm really enables. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I think it'd be helpful to to kick it off with, um, you know, just put what, like, what is WebAssembly and kind of like, you know, what, um, and, and kind of put it in context that way. So um, you mentioned, and there's a lot of parallels. This is the interesting thing. It's, 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 there's a lot of parallels between what happened over the last 10, 20 years in Web 2 and what's happening right now in Web 3. So what happened in Web 2 is like you had cut the, you know, the, the consumer internet and the consumer web kind of come online started off as static web pages. And then there was this intro introduction of JavaScript, which is just like this amazing, like it kind of an amazing tool that like, you know, um, enabled more kind of dynamic and interacted web web pages to the point where we now have, and it, and it took off obviously. So now we have like full blown, like applications that are possible in the browser. Um, but then like anything else, developers want to do more. They're always pushing the boundaries of what's possible. They want to build kind of like more performant things, more, flexible things, just more novel things. And so now over the past like five or so years, like dev started rubbing up into the limitations of the browser and um, so, and uh, JavaScript, the Protean slip. Um, but, it, and what happened is like the, you know, WebAssembly, which is like kind of a, think of it kind of like a VM type thing. It's like an execution, like a runtime um, that a bunch of different languages can compile down to. So basically if, you splice in this WebAssembly thing into the browser, you're not limited to just uh, JavaScript, but you can also kind of port over your Rust code or your C++ code or things like that. Um, and the reason this is powerful is because there are reasons you might want to use those other languages. And so, you know, whether it's for pure performance and efficiency, like, you know, people will use C or C++ for like very low level system things because it's like highly performant. It requires a different skill set, but all these things make trade-offs. And so, um, you know, you might want to use C for something. You might want to use Rust for something else. Maybe you just like it. Maybe you just like the syntax. There's a lot of people who are just like big fans of, of programming in some type of specific way. Maybe it's because there is some type of functionality that you're trying to accomplish that isn't as easy to do with the other one. They're just, they're trade-offs. So what happened was when kind of WebAssembly came to be and it was spliced into this browser context, um, it it really opened the design space for what developers can build. And just one easy example that it's used all over the place. We actually wrote an article on this. I can I can maybe drop in the show notes or something. But um, one very interesting example is Figma. So everyone knows Figma, like, you know, disrupted the design space, now $20 billion company, disrupted Adobe, et cetera. Um, what they did that was really novel that kind of enabled this disruption was actually based on WebAssembly. Now they had, you know, if you think about Figma, right, it's like what they did from a user standpoint is enable kind of an interactive, like collaborative design tool in the browser that was never really possible in the browser. These things were always done on desktop because that's where you were able to get the flexibility and performance and in doing it kind of fragmented um, the, the inter, you know, the interactions, like it wasn't able to be a real time kind of interactive tool with your teammates, right? You, you design something in a, in a little isolated bubble and you would maybe email it to somebody or whatever. So they 
they enabled this fundamentally new experience by combining um, like Java uh, TypeScript, actually Rust and C++ for different pieces of that application in the browser that enable different things, completely unlock the design space. And lo and behold, $20 billion company. Um, so that's just like one example of like the power of kind of enabling developers to just do more um, in, in, in like unlocking things on certain platforms. And um, I think the same thing is happening with Web3. So you it kind of parallels it, right? Like you had you had Ethereum, um, got really popular, you know, this Solidity thing and EVM um, was easy enough to use. It like took off like a rocket. People really want to build for this, this Ethereum destination. Um, but the actual like, execution environment that's being used, the EVM and Solidity, are, also do have their limitations. And we're, we're starting to rub up on those. And that's why in our view, when you kind of bring this kind of tried and true WebAssembly like execution, which solved this exact problem or very similar problem in Web2 and kind of put it onto Web3 for developers to interact with, um, I, I think you'll get kind of similar results. And so that ties into the ZK Wasm part. The ZK part clearly comes in because we are building a ZK rollup. Technically, like an L, technically a Validium. Ultimately, I think we will shift into being a true rollup. Right now, we will use like alternative DA to enable higher throughput applications. But nonetheless, the zk part helps us kind of like, you know, put it on Ethereum, if you will. And then um, the Wasm part enables kind of smart contracts and and beyond, actually, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But um, it enables these general purpose languages and libraries and um, and tools to be used effectively on Ethereum. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of how we see things. And, uh, we, we think that we're about to unlock like a very, very like big part of the design space. Before we get into, uh, kind of the choices, uh, and trade-offs of Validiums and rollups and, and alternative DA and, and Ethereum DA got kind of like, I'm, I'm coming to realize that as you describe WebAssembly and as it applies to web three execution environments, it sounds like WebAssembly is like this like execution environment aggregator or like this VM aggregator because it allows you to splice together these different pieces of code and then kind of like has this runtime that is composed of like multiple different multiple different programming languages with different syntax. And by combining them together, you're able to unlock new uh, applications and, and possibilities. Is that like a fair like mental modder model to think about wasm um yeah pretty much i mean i wouldn't look at it and say that it's a bunch of different like vms coming together picture it as like one vm that um uh, that support it's like a substrate for all these different languages um and these general purpose languages and when you bring along the general purpose languages what happens you get to you get to bring along the general purpose like tools and frameworks and libraries that people have built up over the past five to 10 years. Like every one of these languages that have been just used in daily, in, in everyday development in web two have some of some hundreds or thousands of like, like packages and libraries that each individually have network effects to them that make developers give developers like an easier time building things. Cause it's just, you know how, how it works. Um, it's just a bunch of tools, more tools in the toolkit. And so, yeah, I do think of it, think of it as like a VM that um, lets you kind of like, bring in all those toolkits from all those different languages. And um, yeah, I think I think what you said was a good way of looking at it. So um, the, I got asked this morning on the uh, on, on the uh, Blockchain podcast uh, what I think about alternative VMs. And without di digging into the details about the technology too much, the, the main thing that I said was that the onboarding of, of developer potential is absolutely so bullish and regardless of which one wins or who succeeds and all the other different components this this idea of finally some sort of uh technology capable of onboarding tons of non-crypto native developers is like basically here and ready to be played with um and i, I feel like you guys think it's even to the next level because uh devs can basically build contract in a variety of different languages um, which can also still interact with each other the, at the core level um, in the code base. So, um, yeah, would love to, to kind of dive into that a bit more as well. Like, so if I'm if I'm a, if I'm a, a Rust 
dev, Rob, TypeScript dev, we can both contribute to the same uh, project or same idea, same application using different languages uh, and still have it functioning all at once, one code base. Uh, how, how does that kind of work? Like, how does the differentiation of languages work? Um, you know, and, and is that kind of, am I thinking about that in the right way as well? You are, you are. And I'll, I'll, I'll set like, uh, set the foundation and then we can go into like a specific example to make it clear. Um, cause, cause you're exactly right. And it, um, let's see. So the way, if you're, if you're a Rust developer, um, you might be, you might come in kind of like two different flavors. I mean, you could be somebody who's a Rust developer who's already kind of familiar with blockchain things. And then like, you know, you know how to program in like smart contracts. You're familiar with maybe you've built on Solana or maybe you've built on Ethereum L1 or something like that. And, and that's where we're making it easy for that person because they can, as part of our kind of like smart contract environment on the L2, um, you know, they can basically write those Rust smart contracts the same way you described. Um, and everything on the, on, on that part of the platform is EVM compatible. So, um, that means we're not trying to reinvent like our own standards for Rust smart contracts or for TypeScript smart contracts. We're basically take saying, okay, Solidity, the way so many people already in, in crypto know how to program in Solidity and for EVM things. So let's just make it as compatible and like close to that developer experience as possible, yet let somebody um, program in Rust or some of these other languages. So we're trying, I think it kind of hits a nice sweet spot for people who are already kind of like Web3 native. Um, cause it's like, Hey, we're, we're, we are, we're following like the standards of kind of like EVM and Solidity and stuff, but letting you kind of bring, bring your own tools and, and kind of fit into that framework. And people have seen, devs seem to really, uh, like that so far in, in, in our experience. Um, on the other side, if you're, if you're a web two and I'll come full circle to the question about like these things interact, the different languages interacting with each other. But if you're a, a web two native. And maybe you come and you say, oh, I don't know smart contracts right now at all. Or, or maybe you're, maybe you do, but like the use case that you want to build does not, is not best suited for smart contracts. Like maybe the use case that you want to build is really just needs like verifiable computation of just like regular code. Um, you can do that. Like you can, that person can just come and not even have to worry about the smart contract part at all. They just kind of write their logic in Rust in whatever language. And it gets kind of the computation gets like proven and is verifiable under the hood. So like there's there's a few different ways you see you kind of had me put you know sit in the seat of a Rust developer. Like there's a couple different ways to look at it depending on the use case. But now okay, let's just say you want to build a uh, Andy wants to build a smart contract in Rust and Robbie wants to build a smart contract in like a TypeScript or, or Solidity or something. Um, like what 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 does that look like? Uh, let's let's root it in an example. So we've been talking to a number of, of like on-chain gaming and like autonomous world builders. And what seems to be interesting in that world is, um, you know, maybe one developer who is building kind of like the baseline logic for like a game or a world or something, right? Like a digital physics or like maybe just maybe a more simple like modding use case where like you have like a, a you know, Super Mario or something like that kind of game. And somebody wants to build kind of the baseline of that that game or just the, the core components of it in one language, maybe in Rust. And then they want um, some parts of the game, you know, at, at any layer of abstraction, it could be like down to some like digital physics or it can be kind of just like most of the game and let people kind of interchange the weapons or the way that somebody jumps up in the air or whatever, um, or the background. Um, that can be composed together in a different language. So Robbie can come along and be like, you know, he could be anybody in the world, anywhere in the world and come along and just be like, okay, well, I know, I know TypeScript and I want to like extend that game or kind of like tailor that thing um, in TypeScript. You can just come along and and do it. And, you know, you can obviously do that if both of you are writing code in the same language as well, but it's just a matter of like broadening the, the, the market of people who have access to build on that foundation that Andy said. Yeah, that's why I'm so bullish on on um, all of this too. That I think it's like uh, you you widen the scope of, of that you can build on crypto rails. Um and that's just like I mean that is the end game here. Like there's there, there's no other way to get to the vision of of like the the strongest and loudest OGs with their ideas and 
and and and you know the the core ethos of of crypto, uh, you know, without kind of having this functionality, and even taking the dating example a bit further, you've been kind of pushing on uh, on these uh, alternative uh, capabilities, whether you call them L threes or um, you know various different functionalities, which uh, you know these these uh, these developer tooling uh, capabilities can enable. I'd like to kind of explore that a bit as well, kind of thinking outside the box on, on what what you're seeing as like some interesting use cases or or design choices for like how this 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 core this core principle of um, of you know multiple languages onboarding you know devs and building in this uh, WebAssembly environment can then kind of enable. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is where it gets really interesting, right? Because like. Um... It'd probably be helpful just for me to set the stage with like the two main different ways that you can build on Unfluent. So if you picture Fluent as this layer two blockchain, um, we support two different, I'll say like categories of applications. The first category is what we call shared apps. This is like what we were just describing before for the most part, just like smart contracts. There's It's a smart contract platform, very simple. Um, and you know, the EVM compatibility and all the stuff that we just mentioned before, but it's smart contracts. Um, and then, you know, what we also have is the ability to deploy what we're calling shared uh, sovereign apps, which the design space for this is where it gets pretty crazy because in in its simplest or it's it, yeah, in its simplest form, I guess, or it's like most near term form for us, it will be what you could call L2s or like app specific rollups, right? Because like we have our we have our code base, we still have, we still have our chain and like, yeah, it, we're building this framework alongside it and you can kind of like, you know, deploy and customize your own like app specific chains, L3s, whatever. But it doesn't stop there. And this is where it gets cool. Um, it also, it could be basically any type of isolated, like custom, I don't want to say isolated, but like standalone custom um, state machine that you can build using Fluent Base, which is which is our, our framework. Um, like I said, that could be an app specific rollup. It could be like literally a chain of blocks that has some type of computation on top of it. Um, but you don't, it doesn't have to stop there. It can be just uh, it could be like web front ends. It can be, um, you know, we can eventually get to the point where um, that sovereign app is like your browser that's getting ZK proven under the hood. So you could have kind of like, you know, browser based games that pop up and um, it, like ZK state channels and like all this kind of stuff is possible. Like, I don't know if you want to call it L3s because it, it depends how you define kind of like the L2, L3 thing, but We'll we'll go with sovereign apps because they have control over that state uh, machine in in whatever way they want. But essentially, it, you can get the computational integrity um, of Ethereum uh, in just like this crazy design space of like whatever you want to deploy. You can deploy, uh, you can build like databases and new types of databases or um, typical like cloud developer infrastructure. You can um, you can do kind of like verifiable AI inference. Like there's just like all types of, of stuff that you can do there. Um, and I think that's where things get really, really interesting. That said, I mean, a lot of that is best suited for like application specific use cases. Like if you, if you want to deploy some like DeFi thing, like maybe you still want to, um, to have it in like a shared environment and then you might deploy it as a, a, a shared app on Fluent L2, but you kind of see where it's going there. I mean, that's, um, I don't think we, we're 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 throwing around different names for these things, like kind of like shared apps and sovereign apps, and I feel like it kind of gets the point across. Um, but yeah, hopefully that paints a little bit of a picture. Yeah, I mean, L threes have been getting some hate. People have been like, "Bro, we don't need L threes. We, we we hardly have threes that that are like decentralized and functional." So yeah, maybe we we fade L threes for a little bit longer. But also, like, I mean, that is kind of what they are. If you're settling, if you're if you're rolling up and settling to the L two, I mean. I guess you're just a sovereign app on the L2, but yeah, I mean, in shame that's settling to the L2. Well, well, it depends, right? The reason, like in in our like nomenclature, there, like a sovereign app could be like a an L3 chain itself, but like you know, if you have a like a web front end, if it's just like a website that's getting like zk proven, do I want to call that like a? Do I want to conflate that with like an app specific rollup or L3 or chain? Like it's not a chain, like you know. So I I don't know. It's uh we can. 
we can have open discourse on like what these things are called, honestly. But um, we, we didn't want to pigeonhole into like the L3 term because a lot of people don't seem to like it. Taking a quick commercial break here to tell you guys about our lovely sponsors. Right before we get back to this fascinating discussion, we have a message from our current sponsors. Here we go. I want to take a moment to introduce you to our sponsor, Premium Finance. Premium is a native options protocol that offers market-driven pricing and capital-efficient returns for traders and liquidity providers. With Premium, you can trade options on a variety of different crypto assets. What sets Premium apart is its unique pricing mechanism, which is based on the market's expectation of future volatility. This means that options prices are always in line with market conditions, which provides traders with the most fair and transparent pricing. Recently, Premium has just launched their Options Academy, where you can learn for free how to become a proficient options trader. Feel free to check it out at premium.finance, hedge your risks, or amplify your positions um, to earn more capital-efficient returns on Premium Finance. Thank you. And another exciting sponsor to introduce you is Plan of Finance. I've recently been onboarded as an advisor for Plan of Finance, which is one of the first self-custodial wallets to support account abstraction. With Plan of Finance, you can revolutionize your crypto experience and take control of your assets like never before. Say goodbye to the hassle of managing multiple wallets. Hello to a seamless, user-friendly experience. Plan of Finance allows you to easily manage your assets, swap tokens, and earn rewards all in one place on your mobile phone. They have an app in the Apple App Store as well as in the Google Play Store. Uh, with Plan of Finance's self-custodial wallet, you hold the keys to your assets, ensuring the highest level of security and privacy. With tons of cool features like gasless trading, um, interesting yield competitions, and cool NFTs, there's an amazing amount of effort going into building this app that already has tens of thousands of users. So what are you waiting for? Download Plan of Finance today and experience the future of crypto wallets. It's funny, like the, like the, the concept like of a chain and an app, like just get they get like so hazy because like both of these originate from like like a ledger right and you can even point at like something that is pretty definitively like an application like ave like ave has like its own ledger of like account balances on ave but like no one really considers it its own chain yeah yeah the the lines definitely start to blur like the more um the more like things get modular and kind of intertwined and and the more you're taking like a little piece of this over here and it's i think you, we're 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 always going to have these like crypto twitter battles about like what's technically what but i i think the good thing is that um you know the separation of concerns and specialization that's happening with this whole modular movement just ends up like increasing like the rate of innovation and in like a really crazy way and so yeah you know we have we'll have the the never-ending hurdle of finding a decentralized way to like come to consensus on the terminology but it's you know i i think at the end of the day if uh if you're if you're putting more kind of verifiable computation and like keys in people's hands and like, you know, permissionless assets and, and, and logic. I think we're, we're in a good place. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it's all about. Hence the, the, the value in providing people with a WASM module, um, like, like Fluent is doing. Cool, man. Well, let's, uh, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about, um, like why you chose, like, first of all, what is a Validium? Uh, why it's maybe a little bit different than a roll-up. And then why you chose to go the Validium path. Um, and maybe DA is part of that. Maybe we'll talk about that afterwards. Yeah, no, DA is definitely part of that. Um, it, it, is it is it helpful to, uh, to distinguish between the different types of designs? Or do you want me to just dive into um, like why we chose the Validium? Yeah, probably high level, like differentiation is going to help. Okay. Um, yeah, so there's... Uh, I, diving deeper into the terminology part of it without getting like clinging on to to you know the the debates of the day um i, I think some of the things that are pretty non-controversial are um you know the difference between a roll-up a validium um a volition and an, and an optimium jesus um so roll-up obviously you, i mean your your listeners i'm sure have enough like modular context for this um the a true roll-up will put kind of like the the they'll settle on they'll settle and post the trend input or output data to one chain let's just use ethereum as an example um 
And, uh, you know, that's like, what is the settlements like kind of posting the proofs to be verified, like that layer tracks like the state routes and, and kind of like has an eye on like the state changes and it updates the state routes with, um, you know, based on the proof verification. Uh, and then the, the DA part of it is like posting either the full transaction data or like the state differences, like how one, you know, the, the record of like what changed from one state to the other. Um, so that's a full rollup if you're doing all that on Ethereum. Um, and then a validium is if you take the input or output data and put it somewhere else. Um, so maybe that's on Celestia, let's or Eigen DA. Um, and a volition is a hybrid where you give like an app developer user the decision whether they want that this app on your chain to put data over here or over there. So it kind of maintains this like dual state thing where, you know, some of the apps and some of the transactions on the chain have higher security, full roll up security, and some of them have Validium security, slightly less secure. Um, it's extra work, it's extra logic to kind of like maintain that as like the chain itself, but that's a volition. And then an Optimium is just like a Validium, but with optimistic rollups instead of ZK, or sorry, with, with fraud proofs instead of ZK proofs. Very simple. Um, we chose a Validium, at least for the time being. Um, we will probably roll that out. Um, well, okay, let me go into why we chose a Validium. So I, I, we chose a Validium because I think it's, it, it is really important that we maintain kind of the safety assumptions of, of Ethereum or stay as close as possible to that. Um, and yet we, we see a big opportunity to serve like higher throughput use cases, like, like gaming, social fi stuff. Um, there's a lot of gaming projects that are very interested in what we're doing. And like, they typically end up needing like a higher throughput, uh, execution. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I think EigenDA obviously hasn't shipped the the main mainnet yet, but that that is our plan to deploy there, just because the the specs look really really promising to be able to support these these use cases. So so uh, any rollup that's not posting to Ethereum for their data is stuff considered a validium, no longer a rollup. Any is that the key differentiator that's not posting the the like the the transaction data or the input data. Yeah, it, right. that's either a Validium. Well, actually, that could fall into the category of like a Validium Volition or Optimium, honestly. Because right, right. So, but but it's not a rollup. It's not a, it's not a rollup. Yeah, it's exactly. on that like X axis and Y axis in terms of the, like I think it's like gas toss and like decentralization. It's like uh, rollups are like like the highest in terms of highest costs and highest levels of decentralization. Yeah, exactly. I mean. It it could I guess get a little bit trickier because there's the other uh, the other variables of of um, you know what type of data that you're posting in the DA layer right. like if you're posting the full transaction data it's going to be more expensive than if you're just posting the state disk but you get even like better kind of like a trust model if you're posting the full transaction data so it's like what ends up being more expensive if a rollup is posting transaction data on Ethereum versus like a Validium is posting sorry a rollup is posting state diffs on Ethereum cheaper but then a validium is posting full transaction data on somewhere right, or some right, right, right. Yeah, it's, it's not it's not i know it's yeah but <laughs> typically typically it's exactly what you said yeah I mean, it, it must come down from the builder's perspective especially with now the advent of up kind of like da's to the gate if you look at my timeline it's like celestia integrated with somebody new every, every other day i mean it's like well, if you can't compete with other rollups or rollups which are integrated with DA, well, then I mean you got yourself a problem there. So, uh, do you, do you think that that alternative DA is kind of a a bit of could be a bit of an issue for decentralization, or is it is it like it from a builder's perspective, it's a trade off worth worth uh, you know kind of taking in? I definitely think it's a trade off worth taking in. Um, I think that. Um, the the types of app first off I, I if if you can tell from the kind of beginning of the conversation like my mindset is absolutely that developers will just keep on pushing the boundaries of what's possible i mean we saw that with the internet right like with internet bandwidth like every time like we would constantly just push the boundaries of what's possible and like have to roll out like more and more and more infrastructure and people will just flood the thing and so as soon as i think when some of 
this other stuff comes to fruition and you have like millions of developers trying to like build on chain in a very like accessible way and you know um kind of we break through with some key applications that changes like the broader sentiment around it and and blockchains become like an exciting place for people to build i think that people will just keep pushing the damn boundaries of like what's possible so i do think that there's like a whole kind of design space and like a like a very big design space for even just the da component and like things will celestial will get filled up eigen da will get filled up avail will get filled up and like i i really think that if we break through if if things yeah it's bullish you like this right andy <laughs> so wild i mean so i know yeah we are and so i i kind of think of it that way so is it was it worth people considering those trade-offs uh, like yeah absolutely especially because um with da right like um like we're pretty good at solving for uh like scaling data like we're we're pretty we're pretty good at it um in in general even before blockchains like it's just like we 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 know how to solve that problem like pretty well so i i think it's all worthwhile and it's worth me mentioning that i i forgot to say before um the sovereign apps that i described uh that are built using our framework called fluidbase that'll be really, really modular as well. Like we'll end up integrating with like the Celestias and, um, you know, Avails and, and Near and, and we want to make it so any sovereign app that gets built can decide. And that's why that's the point sovereign, like you could decide like to post, they could use, you know, whatever for sequencing for DA, even settlement and, uh, like messaging and interop, all that kind of stuff. So. We 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 so definitely. If you guys will how to do out like raft in a sense, so not maybe not gonna like try to address that market necessarily, but like if builders want to come build apps on Fluid, you have a, a system where they can go from A to B all internally with the necessary tech and and and. Well, so partially, so you can think of it more like an OP stack kind of thing than like a than like a Caldera or a conduit. Like we would be working with the Rast providers to deploy like sovereign apps like as part of their platform basically and under the hood be using kind of like fluent base which is our framework that will then aggregate that where fluent l2 would then aggregate all the proofs and kind of serve as the layer underneath gotcha yeah and i was going to go in a similar direction and then like once again we think about like well what's the difference between an application and a roll-up if it's just like a framework to deploy those things yeah i mean there's a lot going on there. I, 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 I maybe have an answer to that. I, I, I was gonna, gonna further ask about what that, like, what, what's your, what your, uh, your like end, end game is or, or the vision. Is it like Fluent has, you know, dozens and dozens of different apps that are, you know, launched using Fluent based with all RAS using like shared sequencing, different VAs trying to all come together, like bring like, like kind of what's the like what's the what's the vision um all of it man like <laughs> um i i think that we would love to get to a point um where it's so easy for um you know any even like web2 native dev to just like come along and yeah maybe they maybe the application experience that they want to build is um let's just say it's a let's say it's a game let's go with that um, and let's just say that like some smaller portion of the experience they want to build is kind of like more financial in nature and maybe they want to do that in solidity. So yeah, they might learn um, a little bit of like the blockchain kind of like specific stuff. Um, and then maybe they deploy that as a shared app, like a smart contract on Fluent L2. And then maybe like the broader part of their experience is not really like financial in nature. It's just like the logic of their game or whatever. And they want to build that and like, a high performance like rust environment using like as close to just like rust code as possible and all like the libraries that they know frictionless and like i would love it if like that latter part of the experience um was just like a couple clicks away it, frictionless to build as we were just describing but also frictionless to deploy they would just click a couple buttons on like you know caldera or something like that or you know you know whatever maybe like aws has kind of like a ras offering where it's like kind of the way that you just like click a couple buttons to deploy some code in like in AWS Lambda, which is just like a common developer thing that people do. Write your code, very easy, throw it over the wall. AWS takes care of it. I would love for that to kind of be the experience on um, on Fluent, um, working together with some of the RAS providers. Very, very cool. 
Yeah, I, 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 it's starting to come together for like how Fluent integrates with the rest of the modular landscape to ultimately provide this like throw over the wall type of experience to the end, end developer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and under the hood, like that could be going. Um, there can be like a big kind of mesh with between like Fluent and a lot of these other ecosystems, right? I mean, like under um, using Fluent Base, if we have a thousand or several thousand sovereign apps, like maybe some of them are, um, some of them are rollups themselves, or sorry, some of them are let's say Validiums themselves and posting the data on any of the all DA providers that we talked about today. Maybe some of them are just like websites that people deploy that are getting like ZK proven under under the covers. So um, right now, all the all the website, all the like the web front end that we're using, even for our crypto apps, even for our DApps, are like hosted on a centralized place. Like that could all be decentralized. Um, there's a, just a ton of stuff there, and I just think that each one of these different use cases will probably incorporate different parts of the modular stack, like across the board. Yeah, yeah, I think it's um, it's going to sound corny, but it's like uh. You, your your job is like an altruistic one for the whole state uh, sake of crypto, wherein like um, Luke and Nets is going out and 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 launching this toy business and this pudgy world to onboard as many basically normal people into into owning up uh, an MT and having a blockchain wallet without kind of even really understanding what's happening. They're really like. You and and kind of some of the other builders in this, uh, um, you know, L two Alt VM kind of developer experience, non crypto native, devs world is like the main job is to just onboard as many as possible, get them to build with Fluent Base, hope hope that uh, you can help them um, build something super valuable, whether it be consumer facing infra, etc. Maybe get a couple hits, um, and you know, further change the landscape for for developing. I mean that's like the bullish like the most bullish thing about uh I mean you might have a different opinion, but my opinion is like the most bullish thing about this like alternative um VM and also uh roll up and non solidity uh programming language uh smart contracts like yeah you know, we can bring on so many people, so many developers and also non developers, people who think and understand those languages that can be a uh, can be a daughter, can be a you know like a um uh, like a dev real, right and these kind of people too so i'm curious like what your what your plans are uh to actually go out and you know try to onboard some of these uh you know people is it gone is it is it colleges is it like grant like how does one go and get these you know get these uh smart people yeah it's a good question and um you know you mentioned the the whole like like what's what's kind of our 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 mission there like in terms of like democratizing this stuff for like everyday developers. I mean, just a quick note on that. Yeah, we have we have everybody in in Web three screaming like, hey, like how to be onboard the next one billion users, and just like our perspective on that is like empower the first one million developers, and they'll build the ten x better apps that a billion people want to actually use. Right? Like that's just how it works. It's like that type of if you go from whatever. 20,000 or developers uh, in Web3 today, which is, I'm pretty sure it was like 22K in the latest like electric capital report. And you go to a million developers, man, the like the creative like energy in this thing, like the imagination just kind of like compounds like crazy. And then we will get those, those killer, those killer apps. Um, and um, your question about finding your like, Kind of actually going about enabling like all these developers i i think you kind of have to meet the market where it is to some degree like so we definitely want i mean the, the reason we're placing most of our emphasis right now actually on the smart contract l2 part of it is 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 because of that it's like you know there's a lot of people who want to um who are already sold on like blockchains and just want kind of like to broaden the design space like on top of ethereum or just like already in the modular like ecosystem and I mean, that just goes hand in hand with like our, frankly, just like our development, like progress and stuff, like we're getting off the ground and like, that's kind of like the lowest hanging fruit there. Um, and just sufficient number of problems to solve. Um, also like, you know, I think, I think over time, um, 
as you start demonstrating, hey, like, look what's possible. Like, look, this is this is useful for these types of use cases in in Web two. I think you can start to kind of bridge that gap. But honestly, I think the most organic things will end up being um, done that way versus going to like an enterprise and just being like, just use it, like trying to like sell them on it. Like we're going to, I think it makes sense for, um, to kind of straddle that, that line for a little bit and, um, just always try to meet the market kind of like where it is. Um, cause otherwise it's just going to kind of fall on deaf ears. Um, and so to answer your question most directly, like right now we are focused more on kind of like the web three native side of things, but I, I, I do, I do see that, uh, uh, evolving over the next year. And there's an important piece there, like on that line, which is like to, to onboard those developers, like, like if I'm like, you know, a computer science graduate, I'm coming out of college and I'm looking at like, where do I go use this, these skills? I'm either going to go to like, you know, a web two firm that's able to pay, you know, a pretty significant salary, or I'm going to go like where to the, to the web three startups and potentially like, you know, get a much larger incentive. So what are like the incentives right now to like build fluent, build on fluent, use fluent? Like what are those incentives that we can kind of like, we can kind of use to inspire these developers and, and, and onboard that lots of fluent. Um, and then, if not just like influence, but just like that you've seen in crypto as well, like you know, like um, yeah, like 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 how do crypto firms compete with Google mm-hmm. to onboard the next, you know, you know, a like token package? Is it like like what it, you know, yeah, yeah, I, I think, um. I think we we're in a bad spot if we if that ends up being like direct financial incentivization. Like you just start getting into this like bribe flywheel. I think that wouldn't make I, that that wouldn't be ideal. I mean, I I think the best way to do it is like, um, is educating on them what's possible in building on a blockchain that's just simply not possible, uh, building on like an AWS, um, and that can really vary. I mean, I think we'll see as. The, presumably like a kind of a bull market is kind of like, you know, getting started and like as more attention kind of comes back into the space and people start looking and dabbling in blockchains more and more, I think will it, it, what sticks in terms of value props to like the regular web two developer, I still think depends, right? Like I think there are some class of people who do care about kind of like the verifiability of things, but like maybe that's more of a nice to have for a lot of use cases than, um, than the new kind of like business models that are enabled. Like maybe that's the thing that draws people in. And then the the verifiable computation is like, oh, wow, that's like a nice bonus. Like I could just put this whole thing and it's like a platform that just like can't be fucked with. Like that's kind of cool, but it kind of comes after the financial components. And what I mean by financial components is like financial primitives and tools for them to use, not like, hey, come here, I'll give you like a grant or like just token, 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 you know? Um, and so... I think it's really, I think there's a huge gap in terms of um, developer education. I think that's like part of empowering like the web, the web two natives. I think it's important that we like show that we're really clear and about what blockchains can do. And like right now, I don't think we've honestly done like a very good, good job of that to like the external world outside of this little bubble. Yeah. Kind of, uh, kind of uh, wrapping that loop. I think, um, I think that there's a lot of work to do with, University clubs. Also, I think not very well up technology is at the best advertising ever. I think you're right as far as like not competing on financials. If somebody's going to want to build in crypto, then it, it should kind of come innately. But also at the same time, um, yeah, it's competitive market out there. Um, but if, if you can kind of, you know, there's a lot more upside and, and a lot more fun, frankly, uh, building here, I think, than. Um, you know, in, in a traditional environment. So um, I kind of want to just revisit some of your thoughts as one of the early kind of modular pioneers. Um, you know, you mentioned that you started modular media back in the day, must have been in like April or May of this year or previous year, sorry. So, you know, almost going for a year. Whereas, you know, in June, July, I, I we were at MCC and, you know, I've never seen modular day. It was just kind of like, damn, I'm not really sure what that is. I'm going to go to the, like the L2 day. And now, of course, it's like, eh, 
I'm like a modular penguin and, and like we're just talking about modular March. So yeah, I'm just curious as to like how you've seen this thesis develop since, you know, the beginning, I, I guess since you started modular media, like, like what kind of got you interested and intrigued? Um, and maybe even like, what is your individual like modular thesis outside of, you know, what everybody else may, may kind of think about, and, you know, if you have one, just kind of want to pin down some of this and really get to the, the uh, nuts and bolts as to why you are building what you are. Yeah, a lot that could go in a lot of different directions. That's 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 an interesting like route. I mean, I probably started getting interested in the the modular, what's now known as the modular uh like thesis before even modular media. I would probably say it was like mid 2021, honestly, just sitting in actually like Portland, Oregon, just like um uh just like reading crypto Twitter and like I think it was a it was a bear market by then, definitely. Um, and like COVID and all that shit. And like, so I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm reading these like posts by this guy, like Polinia or this, sorry, I don't, I don't know. It's still anonymous. I have no idea who it is, but this Polinia figure on crypto Twitter. And, um, I'm like, this is, this is a different way of framing blockchains than I've ever like seen before. And then at the same time, I quickly discovered like the Celestia guys who like actually predated that in terms of like conceptualizing it, but I just happened to find like Polinia first. Um, and it, it, it honestly just like, it made, it made a lot of sense. I mean, like I said, like coming from the background of like cloud computing and developer tooling, like that is how like modular is how apps get built today. Everybody in this space seems to uh, analogize blockchains to like the iPhone or something like that. It's like, do you know how those apps actually work? Like the, there's a little part on your phone that you're looking at and the back is completely modular. Like every one of the apps that you use today, actually, whether it's on like your browser and your computer or your phone or whatever, has a backend that uses like 15 other modules under the hood. Like it happens so fast and you don't think about it and all just kind of works, but like that's, that's what's happening. So like, um, it's like apps are already modular. <laughs> it's just like they, they are. And, and so I think it makes sense that as you're, and that's because like people, the cloud infrastructure space learned over the course of 20 years that like the monolithic thing is, um, is good until a point, but then you kind of need as the industry matures, you, it naturally gets towards like specialization and like um, it's just kind of like a more flexible way to kind of like create competitive markets and then ultimately like scale, scale performance, but also scale like the, the consumer like experience because you have all these independent parties that are kind of like battling it out for each different component. And that ends up being like the best at the end of the day, like the best possible experience for like devs and users. So like, sorry, I might've lost track of your question to be honest with you, but no, no, I mean, just, it's very open-ended man, because, um, people have different answers. I think they, they come along along the similar route but yeah i just uh, just just very curious about um yeah just just about how you how you're thinking about this right because like even yesterday and, and we're kind of getting this into the into the free thinker here so the freedom to just kind of expand our minds and just take this wherever but even even yesterday it's like most of blockchains are in the past because polygon just put out a post that's tipped about heavy-duty blockchains I put up this little evolution diagram where you've got like the monkey, the monolithic, the, like the half walking monkey human is modular, and then like the all human evolution is like aggregate. So it's just like, like we're so early yet, like the body count is over here pushing us, like pushing it back. So it's just, uh, it's just craziness. It is, it is. Yeah, that's funny. I saw, I didn't see the, 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 the human analogy one i saw one of their other like diagrams but it's interesting actually so you you can kind of look at um the fluent l2 as um as like the sovereign apps proliferate i mean the, the fluent l2 turns into kind of like an, an aggregator layer as well actually like it like that its main responsibility it'll have two responsibilities the first one is to execute the smart contracts and the second one is to aggregate proofs and like post them down to, to l1 so like i i definitely align with um I'd have to read their posts. Like, I don't, I don't know. It, right off the bat, like hearing it as kind of like a different breed of thing. I, I gotta, I gotta look into it. I'm not sure, but like, yeah, I definitely am bullish on like aggregation layers. Cause I mean, um, 
it just makes a lot of sense, right? It's just this, this like hyper scalable thing where you can have like thousands of proofs that just kind of like, instead of having to post all of them on Ethereum, you just like take, make a proof of all those thousand proofs. And all you have to do is post that one proof on Ethereum, which is like this, this beautiful thing. Um, so I, I, the space is changing fast though. I mean, the me mental, mo the, the hard thing and what causes all this tension on like crypto Twitter is like, right when somebody forms a mental model around something, it's broken. <laughs> yeah, of course. Or someone tried to break it for the sake of out of the bot, out of positioning. Um, but the, on that on that point about Fluent's design, and even further about your thesis with regard to um, you know why why modular components are are important. That's what they've been in Web two, um, you know, and, and now just makes sense to transition that here into crypto into Web three. Um, something that that I asked uh, uh, Rushi and uh, Prabal from Abailed very curious to hear your answer like what is your personal value accrual thesis for uh modular blockchains and the modular stack right like um you know i've sent a transaction into on a roll-up on a fluid roll-up um you know it goes through uh some da layer maybe a, a a sequencer or a shared sequencing layer or uh then it goes to the vm for execution that set us back onto ethereum or maybe one day a different setup layer there's all the first different exchanges of value there. And then also like broadly, like um, you know, the different pieces of the stacks, like how do they themselves accrue value from a business perspective? How can they be valued? Like, yeah, you know, what's your value accrual pieces for this stack? And again, it's quite broad. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, I'd probably say I could touch on like my value accrual thesis. And then I guess the valuation of all this stuff is kind of a separate beast. And I, I, I'm not too sure, but the value accrual part, um, I, I think people are, I think people are too rigid in their thinking right now of like what accrues value. Like people will be like, oh, DA can never accrue value. It's like, okay, shared sequencing is going to suck all the value away from RAS. It's like, man. I think that all of this has the opportunity to accrue value. Like if you're providing a valuable function and there are people who want it, like you can charge for that. Like, I think that, um, and that again, just like related to web two, I mean, it's the same thing. Like you have Uber, for example, if you have, if you're building Uber and under the hood, you're not, you're not building your own net messaging service, like to, to, to route like the text messages and stuff like that when drivers are coming. But instead you're using Twilio. It's like an API that's sitting in the cloud under the hood and Uber gets the payment and they somewhere in the back end, all streamlined and out of the thought process of an end user, they pay Twilio for that service. So, and that is, if there's 14 other modules that are like underlying Uber, Maybe they're using like a hosted database for some type of like big data, like parallel processing, or they're paying like Databricks for like their Sparks, their Spark, managed Spark or something like that. Maybe they're paying under that. Maybe they're paying like, you know, AWS or some like Kubernetes service or like whatever. Um, but the point is like, I think all these things can accrue value if like you're, if you're, um, you know, you're providing a valuable service. Um, it's just simply supply and demand. And like, yeah, things get very, in the open kind of crypto environment, things get like more and more competitive. Um, but that doesn't mean everything goes to zero. <laughs> like, I don't think that's how it works. Um, by the way, another another thing on, uh, on value accrual and, and kind of like value capture that I think a lot of people get wrong is thinking that everyone has to or just will choose to price uh, based on cost. I think if there's something that we've learned from, again, Web2 is that like software like the best software teams that I know, certainly price based on value. And I know that might sound kind of like up in the air and silly, but it's true. Like you, you, you get people like when you pay for a software app application, when you, when you buy some SaaS thing, whether it's like Dropbox or whether it's like, like Slack or whatever, put yourself in the shoes of somebody who thinks you have to charge based on cost. Do you think that every additional seat in Slack or zoom costs, like you think they're, they're charging you based on the cost that the cost is nothing. Like the cost is absolutely nothing for them. They can scale from 10 to a million seats on the back end of Zoom for near nothing. They'll do it for free for half of the seats and then they'll start charging. They charge for value. Like it, they, that, that's how it goes. And like, I think that the same thing, the same principles can apply to um, 
like the settlement function or the DA function or any of these different pieces of it. Like, I mean, hey man, like like people who say settlement will like go to zero. It's like think about think about a network of a thousand chains, and you know some of them have like um, like corporations working on them. Some of them have like are more crypto native. Like whatever you have this like full. Um, my friend Ryan Berkman's in the Ethereum ecosystem calls it the Ethereum trade network, and I kind of like that because if you think of like this, even just think of rollups, think of a thousand rollups. And then you have one rollup that wants to like plug in, like what's the value? And this is where the settlement piece comes in. So it's okay. You can look at what the cost is for that rollup to post their proofs on Ethereum L1 and be like, oh, that's five cents a day. But okay. So you might think it goes to zero, but what's the value of being able to plug in to the economic activity of a thousand chains in a way where they will, where the, the trust assumptions are all well understood and you'll get like an A for plays nice with others. Like basically people will trend those other chains will, will, will actually transact and interact with you. Like that is an incredibly valuable function. And so I just think that people are, are, I don't know. I still think we, we need to evolve how we're looking at a lot of these things. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the very primitive mental model for value accrual, uh, is fat protocol thesis or fat application thesis where like, the value was either going to it was either going to flow upstream or it was going to flow downstream to the, the it was either going to flow upstream to the applications or downstream to the infrastructure that was providing like the the you know tooling and the the chains to settle those applications that was in the monolithic era we're now in the modular era where that is broken and like what you're talking about is like it doesn't just flow one way or the other it's like it's like this just like giant like well and you know, it just kind of like flies off into these a million different directions. And in every direction where a tooling is providing value, it'll it'll be able to charge for that value. Because like you're saying, it's not based on cost. Like it'll spin off value in each of those directions to the to the the projects that are providing those functions as long as the the market finds them valuable. Exactly. That's what it's all about. It's just, it's whether the market finds it valuable. Exactly. I mean, even take the example of like a, uh, even take a Celestia, right? Like, I mean, you got people who will, will shit on DA value accrual and be like, all right, like how, you know, if something can um, scale without issue, almost like it's a bad thing. Like, okay, realistically, um, if you're, uh, you know, even if you have, let's see. And I'll make it. I'm I'm making this up right now. Um. So I this there could be some holes in this, but um. Think of like Celestia might be able to scale like indefinitely in theory, and I I believe like I believe that it's it's a very scalable thing, and those guys will figure it out. They're great. Um. But in in reality, like it's going to like if there's manual intervention that's needed every time they want to make the blocks bigger, like maybe it scales for the next like five years in like a pretty seamless way because crypto is just kind of getting going. But then after that, like um, after that, it, there's always a point where like it might, the supply might be less than like the demand is increasing and then you can charge more. Like, and then it's, it's this balancing act. And I think that you end up in each of these and assuming they're providing a valuable service, which they are, it's going to be very like scalable, um, very scalable, like data avail secure data availability. Um, I think that uh, you, yeah, I, I think the market kind of like finds an equilibrium for that, and like it'll they'll be able to charge appropriate value. Like people just, oh, I think oversimplify a lot of this stuff. Yeah, yeah, I got asked today about the DA risks at the bottom, and I, my answer was effectively like, I don't really understand how it's a race to the bottom uh, because the only thing that's happening is a better experience for users. So like, and this is kind of what Prabal uh, was saying, um, where the value approval thesis for the modular stack actually all just come with the all back to the users with better apps, better UX, cheaper fees, and just a better experience overall. And the way that I answered that as well was similar. I was like, I think, I think the DA race at the bottom quote unquote is just it's a it's a it's a race for users to pay way less fees across their favorite rollups, favorite apps, and it's a race for sequence servers to be forced to decentralize uh, and create a more robust um, kind of network of of verifying rollup transactions. So, 
if that's a race to the bottom in terms of the direct value, then like we need more race to the bottoms of crypto because that's just how I'm, I guess how we're gonna get to you know more innovation. I guess you can look at everything, especially in software, then as like a race to the bottom. It's just like how long is the race? You know, like I mean, if the race. I feel like every time some kind of like new functionality comes out, like people will, will charge for it. Like the, it'll be more valuable or more scarce and they'll, more, they'll charge more for it. Whether it's like a new car feature that Elon pushes over or like whether it's like some, whether it's just a new like software product and, and over time, yeah, it's always, it's all a race to the bottom. Like, I mean, obviously it'll get cheaper and cheaper and then they'll offer that feature for like free, but then they'll offer something else that's more novel that, that pops up and just how long, how long is the race, you know? Well, we're still early, you know, and uh, I think uh, I think we will kind of come to a close here. Where can our um, where can our community find you, uh, influent? Where do where where would you like to kind of uh, send them off to? Um, yeah, I would check out our Twitter. Um, you know, at fluent xyz. Um, and I mean, if you're somebody, if any of this resonated with you, if you're someone who's you know trying to to push the boundaries on what's possible, like on Ethereum, deploy dApps in some of these languages. Like we're on private testnet, going uh, on onboarding new partners as as we speak. So we're all accessible to reach out, and we'd love to chat. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, a lot of a lot of insightful and uh, a lot of parts of the brain being interconnected here. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. It was fun. Thanks for listening to the DeFi by Design podcast. And a big thank you to all of our sponsors for their support. Please check them out in the links below, as well as on our website and in our newsletter. We'll be back with more exciting guests and insights. Until then, stay curious, stay informed, and keep designing the future of DeFi.